0: I'm Tony Pringley, your host for the Diversified Podcast, a space where we celebrate and amplify the voices of entrepreneurs from underrepresented backgrounds. On my podcast, you'll hear firsthand from those who have maneuvered through various barriers and have taken a chance and made their business dreams into a reality. Let's go. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Diversified Podcast. I'm your host, Tony Pringley, and I'm so excited about today's episode. Today, we'll be chatting with Josue Pas and Hana Suzuki-Sellingman, the co-founders of First Tech Fund. First Tech Fund is a nonprofit dedicated to closing the digital divide by supporting high school students of underrepresented backgrounds in New York City with free technology, unlimited broadband, targeted mentorship, practical skills, and the opportunity to succeed in the modern world. Today, we'll get the opportunity to hear more about First Tech Fund, any tips and tricks they have for starting a nonprofit, and the importance of closing the technology gap in underrepresented communities. Let's get started. All right. Hi, guys. How are you? We're good.
1: Yeah. Happy to be here. Thanks for having us.
0: Of course. So how's your day going? Are you guys excited about today's conversation?
1: We are. Uh, I think we, we really uh, admire the podcast and so we're, we're super honored to be on uh, and, and we're both uh, having a great week so far. So excited to be here.
0: Awesome, excited that you're here as well. So let's go ahead and jump on in. So I like to start off each episode with asking um, each founder about their aha moment. This is really just kind of like the moment where you're like, oh my gosh, I have to create first tech fund. So let's kind of chat about your aha moment.
1: Yeah, so I can kick us off. Uh, I think for me, it's, uh, it's something that's been a long time coming. Uh, it's a combination of both uh, personal experiences but also professional experiences that really allowed me to launch first tech fund and so I think from my perspective you know I grew up in poverty in a single parent household um, and also it was like a a student that was affected by the digital divide I know that it's something that we have been talking about recently but it's actually something that's existed for a long time and so I saw you know my mom work several jobs in order for me to afford a computer in the home and an internet internet connection and I think that um, you know, that was because there were so many instances like coming and going to the library where I was robbed, right? Whether it was at knife point or, or, or otherwise, um, you know, there were just instances where I didn't feel safe in the, in walking around in the community. And so, uh, that obviously is a, a big part of why we started, but I think the other pieces around my professional experiences, I had already been in three careers by age 26, cause I didn't have a mentor. So I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> And then when I was in the nonprofit space, um, you know, I saw lots of students who couldn't access our free programming, literally hundred percent free because they did not have a computer. So, you know, it was a mix of all those experiences combined with seeing what was happening in the pandemic that really kind of like inspired me to launch.
2: And on my side, I would say it's also a combination of personal and professional experiences, um, My grandma was a public school teacher in Brooklyn and my dad is a product of the public school system here in New York City and even though they're white, they really educated me on the inequities that exist in our public school system, which for context is the largest one in America. And so knowing about those from a young age, I always wanted to make a difference somehow in the community and make sure there was more of an equal playing field and that people had the technology or the education um, that they needed to, you know, succeed in the modern age. And I think when I moved back to New York after college, I immediately was working in the technology industry, which is one of the highest paying industries for people to really be able to uplift themselves out of different experiences, different backgrounds and get, you know, real professional experience and a 401k and all of that. Mm -hmm. Um, But when I moved back to that industry in New York City, I was realizing that most of the people who were working alongside me weren't products of New York City. And so there was not much hiring happening in New York City. And the people of color from New York City who were in those positions were not Retained and we're not staying in those industries for a bunch of different cultural reasons and um, diversity reasons that exist at the organizational level. So I realized that there was a lot of work that needed to be done in making sure that from a young age, students were not only aware of the industries, but were aware of the soft skills that they would need to make their way in these complicated systems where they were a minority and were historically excluded from these spaces. And so I think this is not only true for the tech industry, but for a lot of really well-paying industries that exist here in New York City. And so I wanted to make sure that with the experiences and understanding I had and I gained, I was able to use that to give back to the community that made me who I am today.
0: Yeah, and I feel like I grew up in Indiana. And when I learned more about the public school system in New York City, like the lottery system, It's completely different than in Indiana because in Indiana, you literally just go to the school in your neighborhood. Whereas here, you have to almost, I guess, win a lottery of sorts to get into a school, right?
2: Yeah, the process depends on what you decide to do. So if you're in middle school and you're aware of the process, you start studying for this specialized test. It's kind of like the SAT, but for um, 13-year-olds, which is really complicated to think about. But at that point, you have to decide whether you want to go into a specialized school. Um, Most of the specialized schools are ranked really high, even if they're free and public schools. And so you'd have to do a lot of prepping and studying and then get a good score on that to be considered even for some of these top-tier schools. But then otherwise, a lot of the time students, especially those from black and brown communities, end up going to their local school, which is often underfunded, does not have the same resources as these top tier schools. And so you really have to know from like sixth or seventh grade what you're going to decide to do. And a lot of the time you have to already know if you want to go into STEM at that point to decide that you want to go into a specialized high school. So it's really complicated, but also obviously very important for students to be aware of like what exists out there at a young age so they can start charting themselves down the journey that they want to be on to get to the trajectory that you know will take them to success in whatever field it might be
0: yeah and I can't imagine like at 13 years old like I would have never known that I would be working like diversity and inclusion at 13 so that's a bit of pressure to have to know so far but like you said You know, that's why people have like mentors or like their family members kind of set them up. But if you don't have that, then that can be like kind of scary to like choose a job or like an occupation. So let's kind of get into like starting your own nonprofit because it can be a bit difficult and tedious. Um, So can you tell us more about the different like credentials one may need to start a nonprofit and what are some things that you wish you would have known before starting a nonprofit? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, so I can kick us off on this question. I think um, I'm not going to get into the actual technical forms that you need because that would be a little too specific. But I think like one of the things that I think that was really smart of us to do at the beginning was to actually hire a firm to take care of the paperwork. Right. So when we started, it was April of 2020. We were in like the high of the pandemic, especially here in New York. We were hearing sirens every single day. And so I knew that certain offices were going to be maybe backed up or, you know, uh, with government forms, you make a couple small errors or even one small error, it cannot go through. So um, we incorporated as a business first and we used a company called Acumera. They're based here in New York and Albany, and they helped us with all the paperwork. Right. So we basically provided them the three directors, because when you start a nonprofit, you need three directors of the organization and then we also provided them with a mission statement. And so with that, they were able to help us incorporate. And then um, we filed the 1023EZ. I said I wasn't going to get into forms, but here I go, Um, which is the shorter version of uh, applying for IRS uh, nonprofit status since uh, being a 501c3 is technically a uh, tax status, and so um, you know we applied for that and got it within seven to eight weeks. Um, and and before that, we actually were fiscally sponsored for a couple of weeks through the solo foundation, which is the foundation that Hanna's dad started. So we did have a little bit of help uh, from the family end of it to to start. And in terms of like what I wish I would have known was just that, you know, sometimes we see nonprofits as, you know, only making this great impact and 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 really working the community. But there's actually like a lot of stuff on the back end that goes into it that folks don't think about when they first start it. Right. So that's accounting, that's bookkeeping, that's legal. And all of those are equally important to the organization as is whatever programs you're working on. So I would say um, you know, just, just, um, creating systems from the beginning was, was something that I think we tried to do though. Tried is different than did. Um, but I think like now we're, we're rectifying and and creating the, the right systems for us to scale. So I would say that, you know, I don't think every, every nonprofit needs to be scaled. Um, but I think for us, like we really want to impact as many students as possible. So, um, that's, that's kind of my, my thought on it.
0: Yeah. So, Hannah, what kind of what are your thoughts about that as well? I completely agree
2: with everything that was said. I think having organizational structure and a foundation of how you're going to operate internally is really important so that you're building strong programming and impact on top of all of that. Um, But besides that learning, I think one of the things that I think we did that other nonprofits should definitely look into, depending on what community they're part of, is finding your own nonprofit network. And so in the beginning, um, Josue participated in a lot of different accelerators and fellowships that are basically small group based cohorts that focus on different businesses or nonprofits of a certain age or level of impact we're funding to make sure that you're learning from experts and learning from one another. So I think through a lot of the experiences he had in those, we were able to get to know people who had already done things that we we maybe wanted to do in the future. And also people who had made some of the mistakes that we were potentially about to make Mm -hmm. so that we could prevent ourselves from making those mistakes before we even got our foot in the mistake door. Mm -hmm. Um, And so having that experience and he did a lot of the participatory work, but I got to learn from listening in on a lot of the meetings and it was really beneficial to understand like what not to do and what to do.
0: Yeah. And what's the biggest thing you learned like not to do?
2: Uh
1: I think just not forgetting the data piece of it. I think like data is super important in mm-hmm. uh in the nonprofit space and and, and measuring your outcomes uh making sure that you uh can tie back the impact that you're making to specific metrics is important right you can do all the work but it's how you talk about it, how you position it uh to funders because without funding you can't do the work right so Mm. um just remembering that data collection and uh analysis and asking questions the correct way is super important Um, was something that, you know, I think was emphasized to us as at, at an early stage in the nonprofit Mm -hmm. journey. So I think it was really helpful to, to hit the ground running with, with that in mind.
0: Yeah. And I feel like with any business or really any job data is everything, but it's also like the hardest thing to do. It's like pull the data, get the metrics. Do you all do your own like data pooling or do you get someone to do that for you?
2: Um, I guess We have a combination of things, and so having worked on research and surveys in my professional career, we had some volunteer help, but we also used some of the historical, like, work experience we've had to set up the student surveys and getting metrics from students and their parents in the way that I knew was best, so learning how to do, like, pre-program and post-program surveys that would match up so we could track impact was something we implemented from the get-go but then more recently we've also been able to get volunteers who support us who have more of that like information systems database building experience Mm -hmm. because neither of us are the you know technical expertise people um unfortunately but it's great because we've been connected to different people whether they're college students or you know young professionals who hold more of that data analysis experience and have that expertise in their professional and academic Background. So we've been leveraging them to analyze some of our more historical data, um, especially when it comes to like donors or participants or applicants to our program and what we should be considering that maybe we had overlooked because we didn't have the expertise and time to look into
0: it. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned how you've used kind of some of your learnings from kind of your day job and bringing it into a uh, first tech fund. And that kind of like helps me segue into the next question about burnout. So obviously managing a non-for-profit business means really no extra income. How do you sustain your day job while maintaining first tech fund without feeling burnt out?
1: Yeah. So for me, it's been like a, a bit of a journey. Uh, like I mentioned, I was laid off in the pandemic. And so that actually gave me the time, the social capital, the, um, ability to invest funds into the nonprofit at the early stage. So for the first couple of months I was doing it full time without being paid. Um, but then I, I realized like, okay, I'm not sure how long the pandemic is going to go. So maybe I should get a job. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I started working at a small tech startup. I think I was like employed 11 or 12. Uh, and obviously that was a big time commitment for me. I was working mm-hmm. like 80 hours a week. And so, wow. you know, some some days I'd start at eight or nine and finish at eight. And then I'd have dinner really quickly. And then I'd start on nonprofit stuff, right? And I'd work till one or two in the morning. Uh, and I did that for eight months. Uh, so, you know, once I had an enough or the organization had enough money to, to pay me full time, um, you know, I, I, left that job and then started at first tech fund and in, in May of 20, no, March of 2021 as the only full-time employee. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I thought it would be much, much easier. I was doing all this stuff and working, but then it was like, okay, now you have more bandwidth. There's like actually more for you to do since you're the only full-time employee who's actually you know, running the organization. And so I would say sometimes it can be overwhelming. There's lots of grant deadlines and you're working with students. We're also doing marketing. We're also having to make sure the legal is all in order and mm-hmm. accounting is good. So <clears throat> there's obviously like lots of stuff to, to really think about. And I think for me, there's kind of two ways I cope with, with burnout. So the first is just really um forgetting why or remembering why we really started this like when i talk to students who are getting accepted to internships or uh, my my mentee just wanted the dell scholarship you know my other mentees got a full ride scholarship to columbia um you know those types of moments where you can see that you're making trajectory defining impact i think really helps me to keep going and i think the other thing is just uh, making sure that I schedule time to relax. I know that sounds weird, but for me, if it's not on the calendar, it doesn't happen. And so I literally have like certain days throughout the month when I have no meetings so that I can like really use that time to refresh, but also to do some of the more intensive, like, larger thought work that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, so just being really intentional about like scheduling time for friends and being intentional about scheduling time for rest, uh, has been the way I've tried to to cope with burnout.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. And as you can tell, as an entrepreneur, I think everyone wears many hats, but who who's our only full-time employee mentioned, like all the, I want to say you've mentioned like 10 things that are different hats that he wears. So like, want to give him Big props for balancing all of that and also still maintaining his well-being and mental health. Um, On my side, I still do have two jobs, so this question is something that I think about a lot. But Mm -hmm. when we were starting the nonprofit and Josue was laid off of his full-time job, I was actually taking a mental health leave from my day job because I was in a burnt-out state at like month two and a half of the pandemic and hearing the sirens in New York City and going through a lot personally. So I think that experience actually taught me what I was passionate about and what mattered. And so having the time off from work to invest fully in planning the nonprofit and planning what we were going to do and who we could impact in the community brought me a lot of excitement and joy. And that made me realize that, you know, even though burnout is real, especially when you're balancing lots of different tasks or lots of jobs, it's always important to remember why you're doing it. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, knowing that even now with a new day job compared to when I was on that medical mental health leave, I am now balancing a day job that brings me joy in certain ways, but also balancing not getting burnt out by impacting students, working with students, making sure that the people I care about in our community are getting the support that they need. Um, And I think like Josue said, seeing the students we work with get into college, get different jobs, whether it's like a summer retail job or an internship at a local bank, just brings me so much joy. And it's really like the direct feedback that we get from them that makes me Mm -hmm. feel less burnt out because I feel so fulfilled hearing these students tell us that they're so grateful for the things that we've done for them. Um, And last week, one of my mentees didn't get into the college of her dreams, but in our one-on-one session, she was telling me like, she's so grateful for the opportunities we've given her to think more big picture and know that even though she didn't get into her dream school, she's going to be able to go to a school that is providing her with a huge financial aid package. So she won't be in debt, which, you know, as a 17 year old, isn't really something you think about. And I wasn't thinking about that at 17 as much. Um, but just seeing the impact that we're making on a day-to-day really makes me feel like so much joy after I sign off on of my day job and sign into my first Tech Fun mm-hmm. evening job. And so I think that's how I manage to balance burnout. But similar to Hostway, I also do schedule time away and I'm very mindful about like leaving my phone somewhere else when I shouldn't be looking at it, when I shouldn't be checking my emails when I shouldn't be looking at notifications. And so I think um, everyone takes burnout very differently, but those are the ways that I've personally been able to cope with still having two two jobs.
0: Yeah, and I totally agree about like scheduling time to just relax. Like sometimes after a long day of work, it's just like, look, I'm gonna take one hour to just like lay down, veg out, watch Netflix, and just like have kind of me time. But what are some ways that you all like kind of relax or deal with burnout?
1: <laughs> I don't know if this is relaxing, but uh, I've recently signed up to compete in a triathlon, and oh, wow. so <laughs> um, <laughs> the gym has been uh, the way that I've been using to to relax. For instance, yesterday I went to a boxing class, not related wow. to my triathlon training at all, but it was just a nice way to break up the week and and really um, you know get out of my own head for a bit. Um, But yeah, I think the the running, the biking, the swimming has all forced me to uh, make that a priority. I would say the other thing is like trying to make sure that I have space for reading. Mm -hmm. Uh, Every year I set a goal of 40 books, um, though (laughs) it it depends (laughs) on the year how close I actually get. Uh, I think last year I hit 22. And so, uh, and this year I'm already down bad. I don't even want to tell you the number yet, Um, but I think just... Like I said, being intentional to that and then also spending time with friends has been the way I've coped. What about you?
2: Yeah, on my side, I'm a big extrovert. So when I can finding the time to see friends and mm-hmm. spend really mindful time with friends, where like we're talking, doing something that we both care about together is really important for me. Um, but besides that, I would say, watching reality TV is my (laughs) way of disconnecting. Um, And I know a lot of people look down on reality TV, but as someone that studied communications and media, I think there's a lot to be gained from consuming reality TV. And so that's my personal way of disconnecting from reality is by watching other people's reality. (laughs) Um, And that gets me into like a headspace where I'm not even thinking about any of my stress.
0: Yeah. And people love to handle reality TV, but honestly, like they say, life imitates art or art imitates life. And you can really learn from other people's like mistakes or their journey from reality TV. And I don't know, it just helps you be a better decision maker in my opinion. Um, But it's a fun fact that actually you both are married, which is really, really awesome. My parents were married and founded their own business together. So how do you both balance managing First Tech Fund, as well as balancing like your relationship together.
1: Yeah. So this one's a complicated one, right? Because I think that, um, we got married so young that, mm-hmm. uh, I think like we've now been together almost four years and I'm about to turn 30 and Hana just turned 28. So, okay. um, I would say like, we are in a different circumstance in most people because we got married so young but i think Mm -hmm. uh you know at the outset of being married uh we both communicated our values and goals and and because i grew up living in poverty like i was very driven and very goal oriented in terms of creating generational wealth for my family and for myself i tell people Ah. all the time i'm my mom's 401k Right. So wow. like the financial goals that I have are very important to me and very important to my family. And so that was something that we had aligned on from the beginning. Um, and I think that for us, like before we even thought about First Tech Fund, we were already having monthly check-ins about a relationship, about finances, about things we wanted to accomplish both as joint goals and individual goals. And so when we started First Tech Fund, we now do two check-ins, right? We do a weekly check-in on First Tech Fund to make sure that we're aligned on everything that we need to be doing. And then we do a monthly check-in on our relationship, on the finance goals that we have. Uh, When we bought a home, we would do check-ins on how the home purchasing process was going and what we needed to finish. And so I think just being very communicative and upfront about what we both need uh, is really helpful while also keeping in mind, like, That we both have individual goals that we both want to support each other in uh, Mm -hmm. has been important. We haven't led with the fact that we're married in most funding conversations yeah, because I think it makes folks nervous, but-
0: um... Wait, why do you feel like that is? Because I would honestly, I feel like I might trust a married couple more with the business (laughs) than just like maybe two friends or just like two business partners. Why do you think there's a bias between being a married couple?
1: Yeah, I just think that, like, uh, whether in the for-profit or nonprofit space, you know, we've seen that and heard anecdotes of, of funders just being nervous about how it's going to impact the relationship and oh, how yeah. it's going to impact internal dynamics. And so I think for us, we've just always been intentional about trying to keep both separate, right? Because I think it's Ooh, important okay. to, um, to prioritize business, but also prioritize each other. And so... um for us, it, it hasn't been something we've typically led with. Obviously people, people know. And, and like whenever we did interviews or anything like that, we'd be in the same room. And so <laughs> people yeah. like, is that a COVID safe situation? And I'm like, yeah, we're married. Don't worry. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a nice little surprise, but what would you say? And for, for this question?
2: Yeah. I think the thing mentioned about individual goals and mutual goals is so important, especially when you're whether you're getting married or starting like a business partnership or whatever it might be at an early young age, or even in your like fifties, I think it's important to just be aware of where the person's coming from and also Mm. checking in along the course of time and progressing. Um, But on our side, I do think like the balance we've been able to achieve and making sure we're splitting the time between the nonprofit and our personal relationship has been really valuable. Um, So for example, I think, sometimes like we'll plan ahead for, you know, a date night and go to a restaurant that we've both been wanting to go to. And during that time, we are very thoughtful in doing as much as we can to not talk about the nonprofit, to just have that space and time separation from the nonprofit. And, you know, even if we're celebrating the wins of, you know, students getting into university or us getting funding, We, like, celebrate and focus on that for a bit, but then go back to, like, conversating about, like, other things. And so I think having that separation of, like, church and state in a way is really valuable for our relationship because with any couple that gets together, especially when you're young, you're going to be growing or maturing at different trajectories and also your goals might change over the course of time. So Mm -hmm. being able to check in on those and also be supportive and mindful of the other persons and making sure they're getting closer to those goals independently, having independent time to spend time with their close ones, while also spending thoughtful time with one another, um, I think is the way that we've really been able to balance like this whole life partnership combined with business partnership.
0: Yeah. And I love the idea of like the weekly slash like monthly check-ins and then also like the shared goals and values. Because I'd like to say that a successful relationship, yes, it's all about like, oh my gosh, I think you're amazing. But it also comes down to like those shared values, those sh- shared goals, and just the compatibility um, and how you both want to live your life and where you see yourself in the future. And it seems like you both are super aligned with that, which is really nice. Um, so, oh, go for
1: it. I was just going to say, like, you should see the shared <laughs> Google Doc that we have. We have a, a shared oh, wow. Google Doc for, for First Tech Fund, and then we have a shared Google Doc for our relationship. So, you know, throw it on the dock.
0: (laughs) We love, we love the intentionality of it
1: all.
0: (laughs) Because you have to be intentional the same way you're intentional about like your friendships or like, you know, a job that you want. Like you have to be very intentional about, especially your husband, your wife, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, the same intentionality has to be there as well. Um, But let's go ahead and kind of dive into first tech fund one on one. So we're going to get into like kind of more of like the nitty gritty of First Tech Fund. Can you talk more about the disparities between underrepresented communities and technology? And kind of like how does First Tech Fund go about closing these gaps of disparities?
1: Yeah, so I'm going to read this statistic. There's lots of numbers in it, so I didn't want to get it wrong, so I'm going to just read it. So according to EdSurge, as of December of 2020, the number of students impacted by the digital divide is 12 million. And Mm. according to that same uh, report, up to 60% of disconnected students cannot pay for internet access or devices, and this affects Black students and students in urban areas the greatest. Black students and students of color, uh, while they make up 40% of the student population, account for 54% of all disconnected students. Right. So wow. if you think about that, that is a wild, wild statistic. There are so many students who do not have the tools they need. And so that was where the name First Tech came from. We are providing each student in our program, their first piece of technology in the form of a laptop. They get to keep after they go through the program and they also get broadband access for free. So they get a free hotspot Mm -hmm. device. It connects to up to 16 devices and it's unlimited internet access. So we don't throttle their service for whatever reason. We work with T-Mobile and they've been wonderful partners to us, right? And so that's just the beginning, that's the foundation. That's what students need at a core level to be successful, right? But we can't just give someone technology and expect them to know what to do with it. So in addition to giving them technology, we also provide them free curriculum. It's custom built, it's nine months. We start in September and go to June and we focus on two main buckets, right? So the first bucket is around building skills. So how do you use this computer? How do you research things? How do you find information? Public speaking is important, right? These aren't aren't things that aren't taught in school all the time, but are important. Then we do financial literacy. So we had two events last month. We focused on loans, credit, investments, uh, savings, how to set a budget, right? Things that are important life skills that you'll need no matter what career you do. And the other bucket is around career pathways and exploration. So for me, I grew up, my mom cleaned houses for a living, and she also took care of children for a living. I did not know any other career outside of that because that those careers didn't exist in my community. Right. Yeah. So I didn't know that you could work in investment banking. I didn't know that private equity existed. I didn't know that you could work in d at a tech company. These things were not things I was ever exposed to. Right. So for us, we bring in a lot of professionals to speak to students about what it is they do, the challenges they faced, how they got there, what it's like to be the only person of color in the room. Um, And so last year, we had 51 speakers come in from law, healthcare, finance, government, social impact, to just give students a breadth of experiences and pathways so they could make more informed decisions. Mm -hmm. We also pair each student with a mentor. So uh, we pair them with someone and we try to be industry specific. So if you tell us that you want to go to med school, we try to pair you with someone who's in the medical field. Same for law, same for any other industry. And then the other piece is around uh, providing opportunities. So we every week, HANA curates a um, an email with internships, summer programs, college opportunities, uh, so that students, you know, now that they have the tools, now that they have exposure to careers, they can find industry specific programming that helps enrich both them and their resumes. And then lastly, I know this is a lot, uh, we host office hours uh, so that students can get help, right? So Mm -hmm. if you get your financial aid letter, and this is what we're about to do this week, uh and you don't understand what it means or how it works we walk you through that right we walk students through their college essays we walk them through scholarship essays we walk them through anything that they need help with that their counselor can not help with right like i think the statistic is for every 455 k through 12 students there's one counselor on average so how could you ever get enough help from your counselor if they probably can't even remember your name exactly um those are just some of the the key activities uh that we do at first tech fund and, and we've really seen a lot of success like we've seen students get into elite universities we've seen students uh find pathways they didn't know they that existed that they now want to pursue there's a student named mushik who now wants to be a goldman sachs investment banker which is great i'm excited for him and like he didn't know that career existed and now he's like dead set on on doing that so um it's just been really exciting to see how the work has taken off and and how we've um use our own personal experiences to really build a blueprint for students on like how to to reach the the pinnacle of of what they want to accomplish
0: mm mm-hmm. And so true about like you only know about the careers that you see because I didn't know – I didn't even know what like banking was until I got to New York. I didn't really know what DE&I was until like the summer before I had an internship. And it's so important to have those industry professionals come and speak to you, kind of give you even like a day in the life of what they do, which is why I was saying earlier at 13 years old, choosing what you want to do for the rest of your life is – it's a bit excessive, in my opinion, um, <laughs> because imagine if you choose something at 13 and you're like, yeah, I actually don't want to be a doctor. And then, like, so then what do you do after that? You know. And,
1: like, we, we literally host a, a panel called, like, um, non-traditional paths uh, to careers. And then we bring in, like, career switchers so that we can show mm-hmm. students, like, it does kind of suck that you have to make a decision this early, but, like, it's not the end of the world. You can switch careers, mm-hmm. you can pivot, right? We had someone who started as a Michelin star chef and then was a fitness trainer. And then now is a software engineer. Oh, nice. Right. Like knowing that you can change and the like mm-hmm. one thing you choose doesn't have to be forever. I think takes a little bit of the pressure off in terms of like, Oh, I have to choose the right career. Cause I'm going to be stuck.
0: Mm-hmm. And a lot of people are now trying to like train recruiters to like, if they're looking at a resume, Not really thinking of like this person doesn't have the same exact type of job that they're applying to, but almost thinking of like the skills that they can transfer into the new job if they do want to make that pivot as well. So it starts like externally with the students, but also internally with like recruiters and companies and places like that. Um, But mentorship, mentorship is key. Um, I didn't have a mentor until I really got to college. So let's kind of talk about the importance of having a mentor, the difference it can really make in your career. So a lot of people say your network is your net worth. Um, and many times in underrepresented backgrounds, um, people lack a strong network. So let's kind of talk about um, how you've leveraged ne- your network, how you've leveraged mentors within First Tech Fund or in your personal life as well.
2: Yeah, so I think starting with personal life, I... I'm the first in my family to really be in a nine-to-five corporate environment. Both my parents are college educated, but they did not work in a traditional nine-to-five. They either were self-employed or freelance their majority of the career that I was exposed to growing up in their household. And so I think mentors have just been so important for me in my professional career, especially being in the tech industry and oftentimes working with technical teams where I'm one of the few women in the room. Um, And so having mentors has allowed me to really understand how I should be thinking about my benefits, how I should be Mm -hmm. speaking up in spaces where I maybe don't fully feel comfortable speaking up or sometimes maybe questioned because of the way I say things differently than the majority of people Mm -hmm. in the room. And so that's the way in which I've personally, you know, really flourished through having strong mentors throughout my entire professional career. Um, But we try to apply that same mentality of your network being your net worth to our students and connect them not only to one another, but also to the one-on-one mentorship like Josue mentioned. Um, And besides that, you know, we also work to make sure that students are connected with relevant people, whether Mm -hmm. they're college students at the school that they get accepted to or young professionals in industries that they might be curious about because we truly believe that having those one-on-one conversations and getting information when you might be curious about something will really help you figure out what you want to do next and figure out what goals you need to set for yourself to get into that path, if that's what you're truly interested in. Um, And one example of this, I think that we've, we've seen recently is we had a few students get into Columbia University, which is a wonderful institution. But what we know from data again, is that a lot of first-generation or low-income college students have minimal exposure to knowing what the actual college process is like once you get there. And they also don't have a lot of guidance from people in their families or people in their communities, especially if they're first-gen. And so we really work to ensure that our students have strong footing as they're approaching the next step in their academic journey so that we can make sure that they feel included once they get there, they feel like they deserve and 100% are meant to be there, and that they also know what they're getting into when they go to school. So mm-hmm. we recently connected the two students who got into the Ivy League institution in Columbia with an alumni of our program who is currently a first-year student there. And he we woke up to, like, a text message that we had connected, the three of them, on with just, like, I don't even know how many text messages there were, but he basically wrote out details on every single dorm they should be thinking about, different clubs to get involved with on campus, and what to know about the pre-first-year experience, because first-generation students get to move in early and get to know one another to build their networks again before Mm -hmm. everything starts off. So I think just being able to build connections, especially with the next generation of students, um, especially going through the experiences that each of us went through, is is really important. And again, like just brings us so much joy when we see these things working out well. Um, And besides that, we're always, you know, keeping an open door for our students and letting them know that our network is their network. And if we have a student interested in something really specific, like we have a few students interested in product design, which is a field I didn't know about until I started working in product at a tech company, but we've connected some of those students with people who work in those industries, so they can actually get an understanding of the technical programs they should be trying out or the skills that they should gain before they even get into college so that they're even more prepared once they get there. Because, you know, growing up without that family or built-in network in your community puts you at a disadvantage. So we want to make sure we bridge that gap for our students as much as we possibly can to set them up for success.
0: Yeah, and that's so true. And I think it's also... True that when you are kind of seeking out like mentors that, yes, they're good if they're in the same like sector of work as you, but you can also have mentors that are in like different capabilities, right? So if you're in like, I guess for me, D&I, I don't always have to have a mentor that's like a chief diversity officer. I can have a mentor who might be in public relations, who might be in tech or like product design, product management, because we can all learn from different people in different spaces of work, which I think is important.
1: A hundred percent. Yeah. And I would say like one of the best pieces of advice I got, uh, coming up was like building your personal board of advisors, right? Like companies Mm -hmm. have a board of directors to help guide them, steer them. We have a board of directors at First Suck Fund, but I think like having a personal board of directors for yourself and having those people have different skill sets, I think is like super important.
0: So what does one do if they see someone on LinkedIn? They're like, oh my gosh, like I would love for this person. To Be my mentor, do you just ask them? Like, how does that work to ask someone to be your mentor?
1: Yeah, I think, uh, I think the one thing we try to remind students is like mentorship is a two way street, mm. right? So, you can't just go in asking, asking, asking. There also has to be a give, right? Yeah. Like, in, in every relationship, not just mentorship, there has to be an ask and a give. Um, and so I think for us, we just uh, try to advise students on uh making sure to be very direct in what you're looking for right if if it is a longer term relationship or mentorship relationship then like being explicit about that uh because i know i'm not the only one but you know there's discourse around like getting a message and like someone asking for 30 minutes to pick your brain right that's Mm -hmm. very vague and like I don't usually respond to those types of messages because it's like, I'm not sure where you're going to ask me in 30 minutes and like, I'm busy. So just remembering that, you know, folks have lots going on. They have careers, family, board positions, etc. Um, and, and just being direct about what you want. And then the other piece is like, not every mentor you have has to be older than you,
2: right? Ooh. Like
1: I've learned mm-hmm. a lot from, some of my mentees and some of the students who've been in the program and people who are more junior than me in corporate settings. So just keeping an open mind on who can actually be that mentor, I think is also important.
0: Yeah. Reverse mentoring is super real. Like you said, it's, it's a two way like street, right? Like if you're going to reach out to someone who's like the head of this company, like you should be providing some value to that relationship as well. Um, Just because- We can provide value to them and they can provide value to us, which is really awesome. So let's kind of get into the closeout of the episode. It's been so great chatting with you all. So kind of reflecting on your experience with Finding First Tech Fund, what advice would you give to someone who wants to start their own business or like their own nonprofit? Just like that one key piece of advice.
2: I would say just do it like just figure out what it is that you want to do and get started whether it's only helping one person at the get-go or it's helping a hundred people you're still making a difference in the community or the environment that you're trying to help and support and so I think my piece of advice would be like get over that fear and you know do as many google searches as you need to before you get started and figuring out what you actually need to do but also just do it like nike says like just do it
1: yes and i guess like my piece of advice would be to um really find a community of support i think entrepreneurship is a lonely journey it can't feel lonely at least um but having the right people in place to support you, to provide you guidance, to provide you feedback, to provide you encouragement is so important. So I think that beyond joining accelerators um, like Communitas America, um, you know, beyond that being helpful from a tactical standpoint, it's also very helpful from a community standpoint because you are also being connected to other entrepreneurs that are also trying to build something, whether in the same space or a different space. And I think like just having someone to ask questions to can be really helpful because there's lots of things as an entrepreneur you're facing for the first time or feel insurmountable. And so by having those folks in your community, in your network as mentors, um, you know, that's important to your growth as well. So just remembering that regardless of what stage you're at, you know, we try to help provide the students with mentorship and a network, but like, we need the same, right? Mm -hmm. Like there are nonprofit founders that I would love to be my mentor, right? Because they're five or 10 years ahead of where I want to be. Right. And Mm -hmm. so they can really help me provide direction for the company and, and steer us in the right way. So I would say, uh, you know, Don't forget that you can also need a mentor, even if you start a business.
0: Exactly. So you heard that everyone like (laughs) Nike, just do it and build your community. Love both of those pieces of advice. So how can listeners get in contact with you all on social media? Uh, Feel free to pub your website, Instagram, Twitter, email, all the things.
2: Great. So listeners can find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at First Tech Fund. Um, Currently, the other thing we'd love to promote is our fellowship application, which is open until June 1st for New York City students who will be in high school in the fall. Um, You can find more information on this if you're interested at firsttechfund.com. Um, and if you have any other questions or want to reach out to us for anything, feel free to shoot us a message on any of the social media platforms we mentioned. I manage those, so we'll definitely be in touch if you do reach out.
1: And we're always looking for volunteers, uh, board members, advisory members, mentors. So there's lots of ways to volunteer with First Tech Fund and and we're looking to to build and grow with other people. So come join us. <laughs>
0: Awesome. All right, guys, this has been great. Yay. See you later. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest updates, make sure to give us a follow on Instagram at The Diversified Podcast. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Bye.